Season 4, Episode 9, Julie Farnham. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to the ongoing threat to electoral democracy posed by the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and the ongoing legal and political developments that have emanated from it. I'm Scott Kuhn. Happy holiday season to everyone who isn't triggered by the phrase holiday season. This is yet another of my perhaps too infrequent episodes in which I actually interview a guest. This time I have a very special guest indeed, Julie Farnham. Farnham is the first actual witness before the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack I've had the opportunity to interview. So, uh, big event here at the podcast. Um, Farnham has served as the Assistant Director of the Intelligence and Interagency Coordination Division IICD, for the U.S. Capitol Police during the run-up to, and then in the aftermath of, the January 6th, 2021 attack on the Capitol. Following the resignation of her immediate superior, Jack Donahoe, in spring of 2021, Farnham assumed the position of Acting Director of Intelligence and Interagency Coordination for the Capitol Police, and then was passed over for his job in March of 2022, And so she returned to her assistant director position, which she later left. This interview is occasioned by the publication of Farnham's forthcoming book, Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism, which is available for pre-order now, uh, wherever books are sold, with a publication date of January 2nd, 2024. Uh, I had read the advanced copy, and so my questions will be informed by this reading. Farnham is one of a handful of officials who gave actionable intelligence regarding the likelihood of violence in advance of January 6th. In this, she reminded me a bit of Donnell Harvin, her counterpart at D.C. HIMSA, and whoever wrote the FBI Norfolk Field Office's report on January 5th, 2021, although, of course, as she mentions in the interview, that came uh, rather late in the day and not a lot that uh, folks could do about it, and completely understandable why someone wouldn't have read it. Um, As many of the listeners to the show know, the attack was planned openly, uh, not on obscure corners of the Internet, but also on Facebook and Twitter, And so there was a lot of open source uh, information that was found by uh, IICD. Farnham, actually, there are a couple of instances in the book where she just lists it. And it's really long uh, footnotes. She mentions that also in the interview. But they had lots of evidence. And moreover, she disseminated uh, this evidence. She disseminated this material, the intelligence. And leadership didn't do anything, really. Uh, They did very, very little to prepare for January 6th, as of course is evident from anyone who's uh, looked at this at all. And so, again, even though you know a lot of people saw this happening, uh, the FBI as a whole, DHS, which is actually Farnham's old agency, seemed determined not to see anything, being far more event- focused on events in Kenosha than in D.C. on January 6th. So, in order to save time, um, because my interview time is limited, I'm not going to ask the usual question in which the interviewer asks the author to give the elevator pitch for the book, Uh, but instead I'm going to plug it myself in a short review. Even if you've been following the January 6th story very closely, you will learn new facts from Farnham's book. Some of these we touch on in the interview, um, but some of them um, are still in the book, so we don't spoil everything. So she's uniquely positioned to recount not only the story of the intelligence collection in the run-up to the attack, 
but also the events of January 6th itself, as she was in the Capitol Police uh, Center, Command Center. Um, also, she was interviewed by the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, and uh, we don't have a lot of people who've offered uh, an account of that process, um, which she also covers, again, in the book itself. Um, and actually, uh, she begins that she talks about that on beginning on page 211 of the book, uh, assuming the pagination and the advanced copy is the same in the final published version, which probably will be. So you're going to learn new facts from this book. Um, indeed, I probably took as many notes in reading this book as I did in the January 6th report itself. It's very readable. It's not too long. It's only 267 pages, and it is very well documented within the notes. So Farnham goes back and forth between a first-person narrative uh, of her story and uh, an analysis of such things as domestic violent extremism, um, the seditious conspiracy trials of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, and there's also a very thorough recommendation section at the end with ten very specific recommendations um, that seem uh, worth following through on, if, of course, again, part of the problem, people care to follow through on things. So, um... There's a lot, you know, these rather research-intensive chapters, and then the, the narrative chapters. Um, and I, I personally, I found the per first-person stuff um, very, very compelling, more compelling perhaps, although the research chapters are all very good. I think for a lot of people uh, who follow the podcast, um, you know, some of that material is going to be familiar, but you're still going to find new things that you didn't know about, um, which, again... It's, you know, it's coming up on three years out, and we're still learning new facts. There's an interesting section where basically they, they pressured Farnham to uh, not um, to excise certain facts from her book, which I, I found a bit troubling, um, because I do think that at this point, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And so the more people who have stories to recount regarding the failures on January 6th. And again, it's pretty clear this was not an intelligence failure. Sorry, you got to use that one for 9-11. This time we stood up a whole agency. We have the DHS, Capitol Police, has the IICD, and they did their job. They actually reported it. Stephen Sund didn't attend those briefings. And although Farnham seems to, to indicate that um, perhaps that was in part because her old team had a bad reputation, Nonetheless, if you receive notice that white supremacists are going to show up armed, uh, that many people who plan to be in the crowd are planning on showing up armed, that should cause uh, some alarm bells to go off somewhere. And yet the Capitol uh, Police, they did not. And Farnham calls this a culture of mediocrity. So, again, not talking about the officers who patrol in their uniforms, but really addressing the issues of a failure of leadership with regard to the events of January 6th. Now, there's going to be some audio problems. At one point, I have to switch uh, the microphone uh, in the final section. It's my basic phone mic. Um, so, you know, in any event, I apologize for the audio problems. I want to thank Julie Farnham for appearing. And without further ado, let's launch right into the interview. All right, Julie Farnham, welcome. Thank you um, for having me on. Yeah, I first, I, I guess you are the first uh, committee witness to appear on the show, so I'm, I'm very, very happy to have you. I have spent a lot of time with the transcripts, including yours, although I did not reread it in its entirety. Um, 
before the show. I, I did uh, skim it. I had re- I had read it earlier. What I guess one of the things that that we could do is to just, if you would, just sort of describe your career and how it was that you came to work um, as in intelligence at the U.S. Capitol Police on January sixth. Sure. So I worked with the Department of Homeland Security for a little over 15 years before coming to the Capitol Police. At uh, DHS, I was mostly at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is a component within DHS. My most recent job there before leaving was um, I oversaw the intelligence watch at USCIS. I actually set up the intelligence watch for them. And then I oversaw a branch that did the classified vetting of immigration cases that had national security issues. Um, So that was what I did there. I got into intelligence sort of by accident. Um, I worked with immigration mostly up until, you know, a few years before I came over to the Capitol Police. There is a lot of similarities between immigration and intelligence. There's a lot of fraud, as you can imagine, in immigration and um, a lot of intelligence collection related to immigration. Um, And I had worked on some high profile cases like the Boston terrorist, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing and the San Bernardino terrorist attack um, and some of those those high profile cases. And so when a position opened up um, in intelligence at USCIS, uh, I, I was selected for the position. Um, And then USCIS, what a lot of people don't realize is that it is self-funded. So it is not funded through appropriations for the most part. They get appropriations for a couple little things, but overall it's self-funded. And during the pandemic um, between, you know, restricted immigration policies and the pandemic, I was getting furloughed and I had received a furlough notice. So I have bills, I have, you know, childcare, I have people uh, who are dependent on me. So I had to find a job that was going to pay the bills. And so I applied for a job at the Capitol Police and I got the job and I started there in October of 2020. And that's incredibly counterproductive, of course, this furlough policy, because it seems like you would be forcing people who are good at their jobs to seek other employment. Yes, and a lot of really good people did leave USCIS around that time. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Sarnayev brothers. Um, I think what a lot of people don't realize is how small the world of federal law enforcement is in that, you know, it's it's like for for them, everything is the deep state, right? That's their answer to everything. Oh, there's no such thing as a coincidence. No, well, and I'm from Boston originally too, and I know people who lost limbs at the Boston Marathon bombing. Someone who was in my homeroom class, you know, for seven years during junior high and high school, um, I know well, and and he was affected by the bombing. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope he's doing better now. Um, but yeah, one of the uh, one of the interesting things, like that, of course, that case has actually had some bearing on the venue questions with regard to D.C., you know, it's like, can these defendants get a fair trial? And yet, you know, Sarnayev was tried in Boston. DOJ made a big deal about it. And, you know, arguably, like Boston Strong, the big publicity push behind all that, if it's fair to try him in Boston, it's fair to try these people in D.C. because, you know, as bad as they were, um, there wasn't, well, there's a lot of negative publicity, but... They didn't literally bomb innocent people. Anyway, <laughs> some of them wanted to. But... Yes, 
I think if given the chance. Yeah. Okay. So um, one of the main reasons, of course, why you figure so prominently in the report and in your testimony is that I, you're one of a handful of people who actually sounded the alarm, saw the open source intelligence, and was able to produce a document that proves that you alerted officials to what was actually happening uh, in the run-up to January 6th. And um, I'll read uh, quickly from the special event assessment that I think you were the primary author on that, right? Yes, that's correct. And you did, there's a long section in the book where you describe how that happened. Um, you were a, a second in command, but you were fairly critical of the work that was being done and sort of took it over? Yeah, I think that's a good assessment. So you you have uh, what, in most contexts, we would generally call this an executive summary, but in this context, it's, it's a bottom line up front. So this is just the, the quick message for the busy government executive, the busy law enforcement person. Um, and you write, quote, some protesters have indicated they plan to be armed. There's also an indication that white supremacist groups may be attending the protests. And so in your testimony, and again in the book, you appear to, to offer the opinion that this should have been enough. This ought to have been sufficient warning to uh, make it pretty self-evident to the people at the Capitol Police that something bad was going to happen. Um, what do you think was it they, they just failed to really adequately prepare? I think it was a combination of a few things. One of it was um, just a general arrogance. And I mean it in the sense that protests happen every single day on Capitol Hill. It is what the Capitol Police do. It's their bread and butter. So they deal with protests every day. So they had this like sense of like, well, we've got this. We know how to handle big protests. We're, we're on top of it. We don't need to, we don't need any help. So that sort of like mentality the other part of it is, and you alluded to it in um, just now, was the team's reputation. The team that I overtook uh, and I oversaw had a horrible reputation within the Capitol Police. Um, I think the Washington Post ca called it an embarrassment. And it's true. It was. You know, we had 11 analysts. Many of them had no formal training in intelligence. They were very siloed. They didn't work with other people within the Capitol Police or within the intelligence community and law enforcement communities. They didn't produce very good work. And so they just had a bad reputation. So a lot of what was coming out of there was not taken very seriously. Uh, of course, you know, my point was to try to change that. Uh, but at that point, you know, right before January 6th, I had only been there a couple months, so I was relatively unknown. And so I think people, they didn't know who I was. They didn't know if they could trust me. They didn't know if I knew what I was doing. And then you have, you know, leadership that now, although it wasn't evident at the time, leadership like Sun, who has really aligned themselves with the far right. And so I've said this before, um, I don't know what he was thinking, you know, before, before, but I wonder, given what he has come out and done now, if his personal beliefs impacted his professional responsibilities. Yeah, and you're very critical of Sund in the book, and I, I think rightly so. There's a lot of reason. I mean, for example, you cite the fact that, and this, he left the command center and went to his office during the middle of the attack. 
Yes. And that's leaving your post. He left his post. He's yeah, in command. It's like a plane in the middle of a crash and the pilot saying like, hey, I just need to take a little break here. Is that okay? No, that's not okay. It's like a general leaving the battlefield. Not only he left, but also, I believe, his second in command as well, right? Yes, that is correct. Chad, Chad Tong. Right. So, and there, I, I think that this is a recurring theme that we see, this idea that for some reason, um, these are normal Republican protesters and they're going to be peaceful. There's this presumption, I think, in law enforcement that they back the blue, and this is going to be just fine. Yeah, I think there was that sentiment, like, and I heard that, and that was one of the questions that I was asked before the select committee um, was about, you know, was there this sentiment that, okay, well, they, they back the blue and, you know, blue line matters and all of that, was that, did that factor in? And it may have factored in um, a little bit. I don't know. Um, it's not something that I necessarily you gave much weight to when I saw the intelligence and when I wrote the report. It's, it's evident, I think, in hindsight, and also even at your old agency, DHS, DHS-INA, which I think we'll talk about uh, a bit later, very focused on Antifa and BLM rather than the, the danger of January 6th. Yes. Um, one of the things that I, I found noteworthy and that you also discussed in the book um, was that so many of the applicants for permits around the Capitol that day, basically every patch of turf was going to be occupied. Um, and that they all, almost all of them, except for weird ones like Brian Lewis, some guy named Brian Lewis just has a permit. Okay. Um, they're all either, you know, like women's groups, like women for Trump, or they're all explicitly Christian groups. And I personally think that was done to kind of frame this event. If they'd done it under the name of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, it might have been different. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. If they were, you know, if they came out and said they were with Stop the Steal, for example, I think we'd give it more, more thought than we did. But at the same time, the Capitol Police generally had a policy of not denying permit requests. And I, and I get that, you know, First Amendment rights, but you have to weigh that with what risk and what threat do they pose. And Capitol Police has traditionally not been willing to make that calculation. And so I don't know if the Christian or woman um, was a factor in whether or not was it was going to be approved, because I think it would have been approved, like, no matter who who did it. And and they've done, they've, they've approved you know, permits for white supremacist groups, for example, and they and white supremacist groups have the right under the First Amendment to demonstrate as well. So I think that ne didn't necessarily factor in. And then uh, the second part of that is because we were in the middle of a pandemic at that time. So there was a limit of 50 people per area to demonstrate. I think the Capitol Police knew that wasn't realistic, but on paper, it had to say, you know, 50 people. And that could have been, and I talk about this in the book, that could have been part of the reason why Stop the Steel didn't just outright say we want, you know, this area and this area, because they knew that they were going to attract more than 50 people. And one of the things that's striking is that um, they also talk about how there's no one plans to march. And yet there was open source intelligence indicating that 
it was planned to march from the ellipse to the Capitol. Yeah, and they did in the first MAGA march and in the second one as well. So it it was very similar to those other two in that sense as well. So yeah, and you you made a point. I also wanted to ask about there. Um, you know, you it was clear to you that some of the permitted groups were really just front groups for um, stop the steal, and that you had you know uh, you personally were suspicious of that. Um, why didn't that raise more alarm bells than it did? Do you think? Yeah, that's frustrating part of it because. I did have information that two of the groups were associated with Stop the Steal. Um, I know the select committee actually found a third group uh, that was affiliated as well. But at the time, you know, this is late December. I had written an email that called out Brian Lewis and then another group called One Nation Under God as being affiliated with Stop the Steal. And I put my concerns in writing. I sent that up the chain. I know that there was a meeting with Sund, with the chief counsel's office and others to talk about, you know, do we revoke the permit? Because at that point, um, the permit had already been approved. And so there was a discussion about should it be revoked or not? And ultimately, they decided not to revoke it. But that was concerning. Um, and we had lots of open source information. There was a website called wildprotest.com that showed where people were going to gather. And there was a map on that website and it showed that they were gonna be on Capitol grounds. So why, even if it wasn't ultimately going to be denied, I think there could have been a case to at least question them more or um, look more closely and be better prepared for what was coming and what we did know was coming. Or at least to have the, the right gear equipment uh, more handy, bring in some buses for the possibility of mass arrests, uh, cancel leave, that sort of thing. That yeah, and I think you make a good point. Like you, could, there could have they could have canceled leave for sure. And there's been a lot of talk about the National Guard and why wasn't the National Guard brought in? That aside, you know, the Capitol Police is part of um, the councils of governments, and they could have called in, you know, Arlington, Montgomery County, Alexandria, all the surrounding jurisdictions to be there that day, and they didn't. So there were a lot of steps absent, you know, not having that National Guard there that the Capitol Police could have taken to have been better prepared that they chose not to take. And I, yeah, I, I have my own theories about that. Maybe we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. I would really be interested to, to hear your take on it. But one of the things that I try to do here is it's almost like uh, a little bit of like current history. And so a lot of the history winds up in these official reports that are produced. And one of them was produced by the uh, the staff report of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. And um, you're critical of some of the material in, in that in, in the book. And I'm, I'm going to issue a little bit of a trigger warning here because I'm going to read a little bit of it because it is about IICD. Quote, USCP's Intelligence and Interagency Coordination Division, IICD, possessed information about the potential for violence at the Capitol on January 6th including a plot to breach the Capitol, the online sharing of maps of the Capitol complex's tunnel systems, and other specific threats of violence. IICD, however, did not convey the full scope of information or assess the threat as likely to occur, which affected USCP's preparations. IICD also issued numerous intelligence products 
but none conveyed the full scope of known information about the threat to Congress to USCP leadership, rank-and-file officers, or law enforcement partners, end quote. So, I mean, it, it really is striking to me that this early report, I think it was in, in spring of 21, um, really singles out IICD, um, but all the indications from your book and everything else I've read is, had you produced even more volumes of material, they would have simply ignored it. Yeah, I would agree with you. You know, that report was one of the very first reports that came out after January 6th. I was not interviewed for that report. Um, and I don't know where they got some of their information. Uh, there was there was a separate report written about the tunnels, and there's been a lot of discussion about the tunnels. There was a separate report that IICD wrote that was not made public, and that was sent up the chain. And I know, and I have an email from Chief Pittman, who was assistant chief, uh, that she sent a message to Sund saying, hey, you know, did you see this report? We should have a meeting about her. We should discuss it something along those lines. Whether or not that meeting happened or not, I don't know. But there was definitely a separate report that was provided to Sund, and there was a request for a meeting to discuss that report. So that, that aside, there was a lot of raw intel that was also um, sent up to leadership, about close to 70 pieces of material. And I do have that. Um, it, I on page 141 of the book, I do list some of the intel that was provided to Capitol Police. And some of it's pretty damning. And they just they just didn't listen to it. Um, I can give you a couple examples. I won't Please. read all of them because there's, there's a lot. But one is, this is from January 4th. I said, um, MPD, which is the D.C. Police Department, shared a tip that they received from an individual who said he was on a bus coming from Houston to DC to attend the January 6th rally and quote, all whom will be carrying weapons if and if any law enforcement attempts to take them away, there will be a gunfight. So there was a lot of like really damning evidence that and intelligence that was sent up beforehand. And I don't think the Senate report really fully captured everything that was happening, even if it wasn't. And I accept the criticism that maybe we should have put more into that assessment. It was a lengthy assessment as it was. And uh, like like you said, you know, the alarm, the, the information that they needed to have to act was there. And then they had a lot of supplemental information that was not in that assessment that was also sent forward. The other part of that um, that I do think that the report got right was that the officers were not adequately prepared. So at the time, the officers, most of them did not receive the intelligence assessment at all. The way it was supposed to go was that I sent it up to my leadership, which I did, and they were supposed to send it down to the officer leadership, you know, the lieutenants and the sergeants, and they were supposed to brief it out at roll call. That did not happen in most instances. Um, and at the time, I wasn't even allowed to directly email all the officers, but it wouldn't have mattered much because officers at the time did not have any phones. So they wouldn't be, and they're not, they're obviously not sitting at desks. So they're not checking their emails regularly. So even if it had been emailed out to them directly, the likelihood of them getting it beforehand was probably um, not a high likelihood. That actually ties into something that I've run across in uh, researching January 6th, where 
Um, uh, the Republicans in the House now are trying to, you know, get a full release of documentation from everything from January 6th. And um, they, you know, other people have claimed, no, it, it's all there. It's all available. And in point of fact, I know just going through the, the, the report that there are documents that have not been released. And I think that's primarily for safety and security. Maybe, yeah, I mean, maybe I think they could release more. As you know, the Capitol Police is not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. I think they should be. And I think there should be a higher level of transparency, if for no other reason than by being transparent, the American people can hold government agencies accountable. And when they don't, then then it creates the perception that they're hiding something when maybe they are, maybe they're not. And it erodes trust. So one of the things that you talk about in, in the book is that um, there were some efforts to perhaps, I don't know, censor or control what you were going to say. Um, there have been allegations that um, Capitol Police was trying to mislead Congress with regard to the failure to prepare for January 6th. Um, could you talk about some of that? Because you don't really go into it, but it seems like there was something of a personal pressure campaign on you. Is that correct? Yeah. And a lot of that happened like after I left. I was open with them before I left. And I left in May of this year, May of 2023. And I was open with them that I was writing a book. Like it wasn't something that I was hiding. And so I was out of the office in May. Um, I was on a medical with the medical situation and they knew it too. And they sent me this letter while I was out recovering that um, they said they had quote, grave concerns about the manner in which it received a copy of Ms. Farnham's manuscript and the way it works for any book, for any publication, because I had a security clearance, I need to submit it to the agencies that had held my clearance to have pre-publication review to make sure there's no classified information in the book. And so of course I would submit it to them first to those agencies and not the Capitol police until I got the clear from them. So that, that message showed me that they didn't really understand what the process was, but then their letter went on and this is a three page letter. It said, Ms. Farnham, this is a quote from them. Ms. Farnham is hereby directed to immediately cease and desist from disseminating, distributing, sharing, discussing, or otherwise revealing the contents of her manuscript. And then they asked me to sign an attestation signed under the penalty of perjury, saying that I would not ever release this manuscript and that they would seek an injunction and that they would refer me to the quote, appropriate law enforcement agencies. And so, of course, you know, that's like a scary letter to receive. So I resigned um, and I resigned in part because like they were going to they were going to fire me probably. And the book and getting the truth out was more important to me than the Capitol Police and a job. So, so the, the irony being that I got there because I was going to get furloughed and now like I was my time ending at the Capitol Police was putting me in the same situation. But for me, it was it was a matter of getting the truth out or staying there and being quiet. And I could not be quiet any longer. So what about the possibility of federal whistleblower protection? Um, could that be something you could have done? 
the protections, and I did get a whistleblower attorney, the protections in the legislative branch are much less than what they are in the executive branch. Um, so, you know, I did, I do have a good attorney and he helped me through this whole process and I'm very thankful and grateful to his efforts, but yeah, and they're not as robust in the legislative branch as they are in the executive branch. Um, one of the themes I, I think, um, occurred to me as I read the book is that the, the, what I call the inbox problem. Um, so like just because a document's produced doesn't mean anyone is going to read it. So, I mean, I just, as a federal manager, what your inbox personally look like, uh, you know, during this time period? Um, so during this time period, uh, I would have hundreds of emails daily. Uh, I, I would just have hundreds of emails. And I was pretty fanatical about keeping my emails organized. And part of that goes back to my time at DHS because DHS was subject to FOIA and we would get FOIA requests frequently. And so I was very um, methodical about how I, how I organized my emails and made sure that I read everything and put things in folders by topics. So I just had the habit of that. Uh, but yes, emails, hundreds of them. And so when I hear things about like, you know, the Norfolk memo from the FBI, the fact that that, well, it one, it was sent, you know, the night before January 6th and it was not followed up with a phone call. It was sent to, you know, a lieutenant and a task force officer. It wasn't even sent to Capitol Police leadership. But the fact that he didn't see that does not surprise me at all. And I don't blame him at all because, you know, we just got so many emails every single day. And presumably, I, I don't know, like, what the shift looks like, but um, that's like after hours anyway. I don't know that, you know, people are always checking their emails at home or even they even have the means to do that. Right, right. Scott, your audio is sounding a little weird. Um, so I wanted to ask you about Shane Lamond, uh, who will be familiar to some of the listeners of the podcast, uh, an MPD lieutenant who is in charge of intelligence at the department. Um, and ran into some legal issues due to his alleged passing of law enforcement sensitive information to uh, Enrique Henry Terrio regarding open investigations and possible charges for Terrio and his associates. Um, there's a sense in which Lamond was kind of your counterpart, even though you're your deputy director and he's head of intelligence. So, I mean, perfectly normal that you guys would be in contact. Uh, there's a document, in fact, from the committee um, in their files that, you know, just is a normal con point of contact about some intelligence. Um, so who was Shane Lamond to you? So Shane, he was a coworker. Um, he was a friend. He was a romantic partner. Um, so we were, we were close in the time that we were working together and I recount in the book, you know, how we met and how I got to know him. Um, and I really like my intention was initially just to get to know him because I needed to like break into that world and like get the information. And I was new to the law enforcement arena. I had much more experience in like the federal national security space. Um, but knowing what I know now, would I have made the same choices? No, I don't think I would have. But I think most people can relate to um, 
having a relationship with someone, whether it be romantic or, you know, a friendship and not ha and having that person not be the person that you thought they were. And certainly that's how it turned out with Shane, but it is what it is. And I'm open and I'm um, honest about it in the book because I think to have any integrity in the book and what I'm telling, like I need to be open and honest about things that I could have done differently as well. See, one of the things I was expecting in the book was there's this idea in federal law enforcement where everyone's working long hours, they're not meeting people. And so it's, it's kind of almost natural that um, people will, will pair up and uh, you recount that he asked you out three times and you said no the first two and finally you, you the perseverance wins or something. I, I don't know. Um, but that's really not, that's, I don't think that's a story you tell or is it, is, do you think that's part of it? No, I think you're right. I mean, especially at that time, it was a really strange time, you know, after January 6th. And, and I didn't start seeing him romantically until after January 6th. And, you know, it, we were in like our own little world in our own little bubble, if you will. And it, it was just, and we were working so much. And it was just like the same group of people you were with all the time and talking to all the time and seeing, you know, all the time. And so uh, and it's inevitable that sometimes things will be more than just coworkers. And I think one of the things that uh, strike me, of course, like the world of, you know, D.C. law enforcement is probably rather small. Um, and of course, he's not the only person who figures in the investigation that is a coworker of yours or, or someone that, that you know. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that you saw they uh, had a Punisher sticker on his, his vehicle. But I guess because you're focused on foreign rather than domestic, that wasn't really a, a red flag for you. Well, I think it was a red flag in the sense that I noticed it was there for sure. And it wasn't so much that it wasn't a red flag. It was that I was dismissive of the red flag. And I think people do that in a lot of different contexts when it comes to, you know, relationships, right? You see red flags, but you like the person. And so you can't believe that they would actually be, you know, associated with something bad. So it happens. I, I knew I knew it was there. I just wasn't because I talked to him every day about, you know, domestic terrorism and all these things. And he never gave any indication to me that he was sympathetic with these extremists, um, that he was a big like Trump supporter. Uh, like I knew he was a Republican, but he never said anything to me that was like, I love Trump or anything like that. And maybe it was because he knew that I didn't exactly share the same feelings, but we didn't have a lot of like political discussions. So it wasn't something that uh, I would attribute to him as being an extremist himself. Yeah, one of the weird things for me as a kid growing up in the 70s is that I, uh, I read Spider-Man. I actually had the Punisher's first uh, first appearance. I wish I'd held on to that, not drawn on it, eventually thrown it away. Um, but Frank Castle, the character, but he wasn't supposed to be a hero. And yet he's been turned into that um, and in, in some weird way. Um, yeah, the other one that, I, of course, you always see are, is the Spartan helmet, right? Unless it's white and green and it's Michigan State, that's a that's a red flag, right? Come and take it. Right. But, yeah, you see those occasionally. So, I mean, yeah. Um, and also, I mean, when you were at DHS, were you doing a lot of sort of like open source work as well or... 
No, it was mostly classified work, uh, a little bit of open source, but generally no, not like what it was at the Capitol Police. At the Cap Capitol Police, it was like 95% open source work. And so you've had probably the most harrowing crash course in domestic violent extremism imaginable. I mean, reading your book now, it's clear that you are an expert on all of these subjects. Well, I guess I'm well-rounded in intelligence now, you can say. But, you know, when I came to the Capitol Police, I don't know how many experts there were at all in the federal government on domestic violent extremists. Like, it's just not something, and to a certain de degree, I think today, still, it's not given the attention that it deserves and that it needs. It takes a, a long time for them to, to really kind of gear up. Um, like for, I think, a decade, sovereign citizens were in the court system filing their own briefs and making these absurd arguments and a lot of federal judges just kind of thought they were they were crazy um they didn't understand what you know what was actually happening and now i think they understand it better it's, it's far more robust and when they try that sovereign citizen stuff in court they they do shut it down but yeah it, it takes some time um on page 221 you write that the fbi had interviewed you about Lamond in February of 2022. And one of the things that you described in the interview was that Lamond had told you about Terrio and uh, his relationship with them. Um, what, if anything, can you say about what Lamond told you about uh, Enrique Henry Terrio? So with, with um, the head of the Proud Boys, it was the conversations we had. Well, let me back up. So I knew Terrio was an informant for many police departments, not just MPD. So it wasn't strange to me that Shane would be speaking to him. That just, I figured like normal course of like law enforcement business. It was not anything alarming or strange. It was very normal. And so that he would say, that Shane would say to me that he was having conversations with Tario or that, you know, one example they met at the Dubliner restaurant in DC to talk and have drinks or whatever. That wasn't weird to me. Um, so those, it was very like high level. I never asked and we never went into detail about like what they were discussing. I made assumptions that they were just talking about, you know, Proud Boy activities and things like that. And nothing more than that. So there was nothing in our conversations between Shane and I about the Proud Boys that would, um, be alarming to me or that indicated that there was any illegal activity on Shane's part going on. Yeah. And of course, you know, you can formulate all kinds of theories like, was this some kind of weird Stockholm syndrome? Like was Shane Lamond not a far right guy, but then they started hanging out with them and kind of starts identifying with them. I mean, who knows, but um, his case is where it is, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, I think, and this is just like speculation completely on my part from like my brain to your ears. I, you know, he, I think is going to make the case or try to make the case that he was just doing his job. But I think when you look at some of the things like tipping off Tario that he was going to get arrested or um, asking who had already been arrested for January 6th after Tario asked about it, like those things are harder to explain away. And so I think the trial will be interesting. Yeah, whatever documents he's working off of, you know, federal documents, if they're sensitive, that they'll be marked. This is the Trump problem, Mar-a-Lago. They're, they're going to be marked. And so wherever he got this information from, 
to, to share that with a criminal defendant or a potential criminal defendant, again, it's kind of like when Sun leaves the command center. It's it's mind-boggling to me anyway that anyone in federal law enforcement would know that that's, you know, would think that that's okay. Yeah, well, and I, when I read it in the indictment too, I was a little bit angry because Shane had told me that Tari was going to be arrest, arrested as well. And he's like, oh, it's close hold. Don't tell anyone. I'm like, okay, that's fine. I can do that. And then he's telling Tario himself. So there you go. That's the worst <laughs> possible thing you could do. Um, so one of the things, and this is uh, very much described in your book, are the threats that uh, are made against members and that these threats have been increasing, uh, both in terms of, you know, in D.C. or their homes and surrounding areas and back in their districts. Um, what proportion or what do you think that like this effort to protect members um, from these ongoing threats has actually kind of diverted resources away from the you know the what what in hindsight seems to be have, have been an obvious threat to the capital not necessarily I mean sh sure it's like a drain on the capital police as a whole because you know that year there was what close to or in 2021, there was close to 10,000 threats made against members. But the process of like identifying those threats and how they're vetted and all of that, whether it's against a specific member, if it's a general threat, if it's a threat against, you know, the capital itself, those would be handled in a similar way. So I don't necessarily think that in and of itself was a distraction. The volume, the volume of threats is, is a lot, was a lot, still is a lot. And that's unfortunate. I mean, like for me, I'm running for local office here in Arlington, Virginia. And when I announced, I got seven threats that first week. And it's never okay to threaten a member who, a candidate or an elected official, regardless of what the party is, whatever, regardless of what their belief is, that's never okay. And so the Capitol Police are really bogged down with that, as are, you know, other police departments at local levels, not just the federal level, state level. And it's a problem. It is a problem in our country. And something I know I, I, I you know, because my own background keep bringing up Nazi Germany, but that's one of the things that was very common. You have this politicization of violence and the escalation of threats and, of course, actual violence, right? I mean, uh, Gabby Giffords, you know, um, right. that kind of thing. But um, now, one of the things that is in your book that I believe is genuinely new um, was a report prepared by Army Intelligence for top Pentagon brass concerning the possibility of violence at the Capitol on January 6th. You attributed this to an anonymous source that you interviewed on April 7th, 2022. Um, we don't have this document, but according to your source, Generals Charles Flynn and Bradley Gierke, quote, were dismissive of the report and explicitly stated it should have contained more information about Antifa uh, from page 97 um, of your book. So what, if anything, can you tell us about this report and what you had heard about it? So this report was written by six people at the Pentagon, and it was about uh, January 6th and the rally that was expected. 
The report outlined much of, you know, similar to what the report for that I wrote for the Capitol Police that, you know, right wing extremists were going to be there. The report and this this group of individuals who wrote the report recommended that the military be postured in a way to respond, the National Guard be ready to respond should it be needed. And this report was presented um, to Flynn and Gurick, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, and they immediately dismissed it. They thought that it did not contain enough information about Antifa, and they did not believe that it was going to be right-wing extremist, and they were ultimately uh, did not heed the recommendation and did not uh, prepare appropriately. One of the things that I, I think, um, my own thinking on a lot of this involving Flynn um, and that, that circle of people at the Pentagon who held up uh, D.C. National Guard deployment for a long time, um, is it, I think, and this is something that we will never know, but I think that um, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff may have, in some sense, uh, General Milley may have saved democracy that day because um, I think he was very afraid of deploying the military in any capacity uh, for the possibility that Trump might issue them illegal orders directly. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no way to prove that. And the, if, if that is a thing that actually happened, then we will never know because the fact that you have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff afraid of such a prospect would be a national security matter and they're never going to talk about it publicly. Um, so have you, have you looked at the memo uh, that was written by Colonel Earl Matthews? I know I did an episode on it. Um, that the hang-up on National Guard deployment was largely caused by the Pentagon and certainly intentional, uh, whereas the Pentagon kept pointing fingers at General Walker and his staff. Um, did your anonymous source have any other insight on, on that question of National Guard deployment? Um, yeah, he did. I mean, he when I had talked to him, he had said, you know, you really got to express like what it was like at the Pentagon at that time. And that um, he, he kept saying, he's like, you don't know what it was like when I was there. And the politics kind of ruled everything. And he said it was highly dysfunctional at the time. So, you know, there was that sentiment. And I think it was similar, not just, you know, Department of Defense. I think DHS in particular had, you know, some issues, I'm sure other departments that I don't have personal knowledge about uh, had similar sentiment as well. Because, you know, you remember like with the Trump administration at the beginning of his administration, he had like good appointees. He had good people who like wanted to do well. I saw that, you know, at USCIS when I was there. But by the end of the administration, you weren't even on like the B team. You were on like the C, D, E, and F team. Like people who had no leadership skills, who had no experience in the government, who didn't know what they were doing. Like they were the ones running these agencies and it was bad. Like it was just bad. It's all Cash Patel and Christopher Miller and Ryan McCarthy and Johnny McEntee and people like that. Uh, yeah, personally loyal to Trump, but not necessarily good at their jobs or qualified. Exactly. Um, you, you were just talking about what it was like inside the Pentagon. And I'll turn that question around. And um, since you were in the command center on January 6th, um, one of the things that we've seen from officers is that they were complaining that there was radio silence. There wasn't a lot of comms. They weren't hearing what was going on. It was very frustrating for them. Um, 
on the other end of that, what what were you observing in the command center, uh, especially with regard to like sun leaving and, and the other stuff? Well, I was at the command center earlier in the day. I wasn't in the command center at the height of everything going on. Um, the issue with Sund leaving, that was conveyed to me uh, by Pittman. And if you read some of the testimony with um, Mayor Bowser and uh, Chief Conti, they seem to uh, reiterate what Pittman had told me and to verify what Pittman had told me about Sund. But in the morning when I was there, it was... Um, it was quiet. Like I could see all the cameras from, you know, everything going on in the city. And aside from Freedom Plaza and the Ellipse, like the rest of the city was quite quiet. And that was strange to me. And as I relay in the book too, I had traveled to Bangladesh a few years before and they were having a hartel, which is like a, a protest against the government. And those usually turn violent and turn into riots. And that morning, like when I arrived in Dhaka, and that was at the time the second most populous city in the world. And it was just silent. And when I saw that that morning in the command center, that's what it reminded me of being in Dhaka right before, you know, things start to explode. And certainly that is what happened on January 6th. Yeah. And one of the things I, I also noted that in your book, and it's the, the, the quiet, the calm before the storm. I mean, literally the storming, and of course, saw the QAnon also as the storm. Um, but I mean, do you think it was because I, I, you know, I, I have people I've talked to in the area, and like, do you think it was a, a case where even government employees were reluctant to come to DC? Uh, I realized it was a, the the pandemic, and you had people working remotely. Um, or do you think that it was just you know? Just it just happened to be a quiet day. No, I think a lot of people knew. I mean, not to discount my my knowledge and skills, but really, like, even if I wasn't there and I hadn't written an assessment, like people knew what was going on and what was gonna come. And so, you know, when I hear like, oh, this was an intelligence failure, like, were you like blind and deaf and dumb? Like everyone knew what was going to happen on January 6th. So, like, how did you not know? And so I think a lot of people, and I heard from, you know, people on the Hill, staffers who said that they were told to stay home that day because they knew, you know, what was coming. So, yeah, I do think a lot of people stayed home. Um, and then I'll say, like, one thing about Sun, too, in his book, he faults me and IICD for having most of our employees um, work from home that day. Like, it was not safe to be on Capitol grounds. And so that, you know, more than some of the other things that he said, really irked me because it was another instance where he was not prioritizing safety. And that's, a, you know, that's the one job, by the way, where you definitely can work remotely. I mean, uh, many of the people in my audience do this work and, you know, they're, they're at home, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> you don't, you need a, a stable internet connection, you know, yeah. and, uh, the ability to look at Facebook or Telegram or whatever. Yep, exactly. Um, one, of the, one of the other people who I don't think figures in your book, um, but did figure in the January 6th story, uh, is Deputy Chief Eric Waldo, um, who also left. But he he did something a bit different than Sand. He actually went out and uh, mixed it up with the uh, people attacking the Capitol. Um, I know he doesn't actually really figure in your book but 
what did you have any uh, in experience dealing with him on January 6th or afterwards? Uh, after I, you know, I always got along with Waldo. I didn't really know him before January 6th, January 6th but I did, uh, I did work with him um, and I did get to know him after. And so uh, I, I know there was some of the discussion was about um, being on the lookout for counter protesters and and that's sort of like on par with how the Capitol Police operated. And like usually when there were skirmishes between protesters, it was between, you know, protesters and counter protesters. But January 6th was different than that. And they weren't ready for the enemy within. But for Waldo's part, you know, leaving to go out and, and fight with his officers, like I can understand why he would do that. I don't think it was the best choice because you do need people to be leaders, right? And take charge and be in the lead. But I can also like understand why he would make that choice. So one of the things I, I noticed in the book is that you document a lot of different failures, um, some of which are surprising and some of which are, are fundamental. And you you take a lot of time, for example, uh, talking about position descriptions and the fact that there's no relationship between performance evaluations and position descriptions. Um, and you talk about a, a culture of mediocrity at the USCP. Um, so that being the case, I mean, do you think there's any chance at all that like they could save that agency or do you think it's just kind of there, it's going to be the way, the way it was on January 6th? You know, with all the recommendations that came out after January 6th, I think a lot of them were treated like checking the box, like, okay, we'll write this policy and do this and do that. None of the recommendations really got at the core of the issue, which comes down to the culture of the organization. And I write about it in the book. I talk about um, the Challenger disaster too, and it having similar issues, and that it was really the culture that and that allowed this failure to happen. So, for the Capitol Police, you know, it comes down to communication, it comes down to trust, and it comes down to valuing employees. And I don't think that they have made significant progress in any of those areas, particularly the trust issue. The officers don't trust the leadership. And frankly, I think the leadership has given them reason not to trust them. They don't, they're not treated like they're valued. And some of that has to do with staffing and, you know, they're, they're overworked, they're abused. And it's just, it's not a good situation. And then with communication, before I left, like I saw some of like, the old ways creeping back in. So there were intelligence assessments that we were writing that weren't going out to all the officers and weren't being distributed. And that's like kind of falling back into the same patterns. And, you know, I say in the book too, there was a 2016 GAO report about my team, IICD. And when I got there, most of those recommendations were not implemented. And I think probably after that report came out, they did take actions to try to implement them and GAO closed those recommendations, or excuse me, it wasn't the GAO, it was the OIG, the Capitol Police Inspector General. But, you know, they went back and they fell into their old ways. And so unless they get at the real core of the cultural issues that allowed this failure to happen, it could keep happening over and over and over again. But then that begs the question, like, do we need to look at the Capitol Police differently? Like, do you want to separate protection of people and protection of buildings? 
and split that between two different agencies. Maybe Capitol Police handles the protection of people and then you get, you know, the U.S. Marshal Service or, you know, work with the sergeant in arms in the House and the Senate to figure out a different protection model for the actual buildings. Do they merge with MPD or do they become part of, you know, Secret Service or a different federal agency? I mean, there's a lot of options that are possible. But I think we need to ask the question, like, is the Capitol Police achieving their mission and would they be more effective having a different mission? or should they exist at all? Yeah, I don't, I, your recommendation section is, is excellent. Um, and it's clear a lot of work goes into it, but like, that's to me like the fundamental question because they're, they weren't capable of seeing, you know, you, you have people in charge of intelligence, you gave them the assessment and it was not acted on. And yeah, it just, Seems kind of kind of hopeless. I, I know you've worked in federal government for like 18 years. What's the difference between Julie Farnham when she started working for the federal government and today? I mean, do you feel like, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. The Julie Farnham of today, I don't know, maybe a little bit more jaded and cynical. No, I think, you know, when I started in the government, and I think today too, you know, I really did it because I like serving my country and I like feeling like I'm in a position where I can make positive change. And I like that fulfillment and I feel like I'm doing something that's having a positive impact. And even, even today in the work that I do now, you know, that's part of my motivation. I think after everything that I've seen and that I've been through, and I don't mean it necessarily just January 6th, I mean, a DHS and dealing with the stuff that I dealt with, like I dealt with a lot of like violence and saw a lot of violence and intelligence makes you very, uh, very um, hardened, right? Because you see a lot of bad things very, very often. So maybe I'm a little bit more wary of the world and, um, but I still have hope. I do have hope that there are good people out there and people who want to do the right thing. I think we're in a very dark period of this country. And uh, I hope more people step forward and speak out and speak the truth and have integrity because there are a lot of people in Congress right now who do not have integrity. And that is hurting our country. That is hurting our democracy. People who say that January 6th was just tourists walking and, you know, regular tourists, you know, that is wrong. Like that is wrong, period, full stop. And so we don't need people in Congress more than anyone else, like gaslighting the American people, lying to the American people, and just not having the, the courage to speak the truth. That's problematic. And they're, they're also, I mean, maligning officers. I mean, it, there's this weird situation, as you point out, where this is the only police agency that's under the legislative branch, um, which is odd, you know, I mean, just inherently um i mean maybe it's cyclical maybe it'll get better um but yeah just, just I, i've seen this so many times where people they work for the federal government they come in bright-eyed bushy-tailed and then just um at the end you know uh yeah pardoned by experience perhaps the the uh you know there's a reason why that the pension is there um <laughs> which is another odd circumstance right because it seems like it, the whole government is being run by people who are eligible for retirement that, you know, they can leave 
And it's mm -hmm. like there's an incentive to fix problems. On the other hand, if you tell people to fix a problem and the problem isn't fixable because the people who are higher up aren't going to do the things that need to do to get it fixed, your incentive as a as an employee is just fine. I'm leaving, mm -hmm. um, especially if you're you're eligible for retirement. I mean, yeah, and some people do get fed up and they say, okay, well, I I gave it my all and. I'm not going to make any change. And it's hard. It's hard to make change in the government because change is slow, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. And I think the longer you're there, as long as you still have that motivation to want to do good and to change things, you learn the system and it is a system that you need to like navigate through. And so you need to understand how to um, work through that system to, to get the outcomes that you want. It's possible. It takes time. It takes a lot of perseverance um, but it's not it's not unachievable. Well, that's good. That's that's more hopeful, honestly, than I, I would have expected you, you to say. Um, <laughs> you, also, you talk about Jack Donahue, right, which also seems kind of relevant to that part of it, where I don't know if he was going through something personal, but he winds up leaving. Yes. Yeah. And I was, you know, he started after me at the Capitol Police. And I understand why they selected him as the director but he left, you know, right after um, the issue with Noah Green, who, uh, you know, ran over the police officer and ended up, unfortunately, killing the officer. And yeah, and there were some personal things going on, too. But he kind of just he he just left me there. And that's fine. Like I ended up handling it myself. But I felt, you know, like when the tough gets going, gets going, the some people get going when I'm screwing up that that phrase but when, when the going, the going gets, gets tough, tough, the tough get going. when the going gets tough some people get going that's what I'm trying to say and he left and he left a mess he left an absolute mess and it was all on me to fix it and clean it up which I did and that was part of the frustrating part too is because you know I was there almost three years I did my job I did it well I cleaned up that team that team is a viable team now. There's great intel analysts working for the Capitol Police now. All of that, I did. And I felt like Capitol Police never gave me the credit that I deserved. And that comes down to the culture about valuing your employees. Like I did a lot during a really difficult time and I did it by myself because I didn't have supervisors under me. I didn't have a director above me. You know, it was just me cleaning up a horrendous mess and I did it. And no one cared. And sadly, now that you're gone, it seems quite likely that you're going to get scapegoated. I mean, they tried to scapegoat you from the beginning as well, um, yeah. which is tragic, uh, really. Um, one of the things you talk about is being a woman in federal law enforcement and the culture of the Capitol Police and how there were circumstances where there'd be all these men in leadership and you would be the only woman on the team. Um I mean, do you think that that, you know, they're less likely to listen to uh, female managers in the federal government and law enforcement? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think my time there, particularly towards the end, I definitely got the sense that uh, as a woman, I wasn't my voice. My voice didn't carry the same weight as a man's, a man's voice. And there were instances where I thought that they just didn't want to hear what I had to say. Even if I, I knew I was right, even if I knew I was right, like they didn't want to hear it. And that's frustrating. I mean, in law enforcement, 
anyways, and same, you know, in the executive branch between like federal employees and contractors, and then um, sworn officers and civilian employees. You know, I was a civilian, so what I said wasn't going to give it and would not have been given as much credit as if I had been sworn, even though I came with like a ton of experience and in intel and in homeland security and all of that. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it just really must be very frustrating for you to come at it with more experience in intelligence, certainly, than the people who are, you know, your job is supposed to be in intelligence, and yet there's a culture of not listening to the intelligence, which I think uh, your book did a better job of explaining than a lot of the other things that, that I've read. Um but you call it, I mean, even like this culture of mediocrity, that, those, that's the phrase you use, which again, uh, you know, there's a disconnect between like the public image of the Capitol Police and then what you describe um, and not impugning like the, the officers, you know, the uniformed service, anything like that, but just how the agency is, is managed um, seems to have some deficiencies. Like I was legitimately shocked when you talked about the evaluations and how there's no, there was no relationship between the position description and what happens in the evaluation process. I mean, that's deep in the weeds for like normal people, but that's just not how it's supposed to work. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and the officers are terrific and I'm not knocking the officers at all. Um, you know, with the Capitol police, like, like you mentioned about the position descriptions, like when I got there, my analysts who were by no stretch of the imagination well-trained, they were not, you know, they weren't doing much. And to give them um, expectations of what they needed to do in order to meet expectations, in order to exceed expectations, that wasn't written out in their performance braces. They haven't even been given performance plans when I got there. And that should have been done in September, October. And they were really upset. Those analysts were very, very upset when I gave them standards that they needed to, so I could measure them and make sure that they were meeting them. Um, one of them even like wrote this big long letter to the chief of police about how I was overstepping my authority. And I'm like, well, isn't this what a super isn't this what a supervisor is supposed to be doing? Because that is like this basic supervisory, like you're supposed to let communicate to your employees like what the expectations are and then hold them accountable for meeting those expectations. That's what you do. And so that that had never been done. I mentioned in the book, I never got a performance appraisal at all in the three years that I was there. And so like those are normal things in both the private and public sector. And so that, that they weren't done shows that they didn't particularly, you know, care very much about performance. And I used to bring up, particularly in like HR admin type things, like, why do we do things this way? This is not the way the rest of the government does it. And I would always be told like, well, this is the way we've always done it. Like, well, that's an excuse. That is not a reason. And there are better ways to do things. Why don't we look at best practices elsewhere? And they're like, well, we're the legislative branch. Well, okay, but you're not that different. And in, uh, in other agencies, like that, the th thing with the performance evaluations, like somebody's head would roll, right? There would be consequences. Mm -hmm. But it seems like, you know, members of Congress, they want to kiss babies. They want to get reelected and maybe get a job on K Street. They're not invested necessarily, apparently, in, in running the institution, um, which is unfortunate. 
one of the things I wanted to touch on was this incident um, that hasn't gotten a lot of publicity. It was at least new to me in the book. Um, it's on pages 112 to 113, in which you describe this incident where there is a Russian journalist who had been stopped. Um, I don't know if you described by whom. Was this like a traffic stop or was it someone on Capitol grounds? It was someone on Capitol grounds. Um, I don't know why, what initially prompted the stop, but you know, he was questioned by Capitol Police officers and agents. And they sent me a copy of his ID and they said he was a journalist and there was something suspicious about him. And when he sent a copy of the ID, the ID was his visa. And the visa was an R visa. And coming from a background in immigration, I knew right away, I was like, this guy is not a journalist. And our visa is for someone who is here as a religious worker. And so that was a red flag right there because his story and his documents were not matching. And so at least warranted, I mean, I don't know what his intentions were, but I think that at least warranted further questioning. And I did communicate that to the investigations division at the Capitol Police. And this story, by the way, is one of the stories that the Capitol Police said that needed to come out of the book. I did not take it out of the book, but they were pretty upset with me, including the story. Um, and so, you know, there that was, it needed more attention than it got. And I understand that January 6th was a busy day and there were a lot, a lot of things going on, but it never um, prompted anyone at the Capitol Police to say, okay, well, we need to Think about this more we need to look into this more we need to get more information from these people like none of that raised any like concerns for them and that was really bothersome for me and i ultimately you know transferred it over to the right agencies who were interested in it but things like that are really problematic well and in addition to that there were what two people on the rooftop of a nearby hotel who were also were, russian nationals two? two Russian nationals um, on the rooftop near uh, near the Capitol, overlooking the Capitol. They were questioned as well. And again, like, it was like, stop recording. It's like, okay. And then that was the end of it. But like, well, like, what were they doing there? What were they looking at? Who were they working for? Like all of those questions that are just like basic questions that should be asked. You know, it didn't get the attention that it needed. And that comes down to training of the officers, right? I mean, the Capitol is unique in the sense that we're the center of democracy. So there, it makes it a target. And so you need to look at, you know, are they getting counterintelligence training? Are they getting that sort of training regularly? And that's important. I mean, the fact that we can have any Russian national get access to a hotel rooftop in D.C. overlooking the Capitol and nobody hears about it. I mean, that's very concerning. I mean, it, it implies that they knew something was going to happen, not to say that they were involved, but they suspected it as many others did, um, and that they were they had an interest. And where's the follow through? So we don't, we don't know anything else is what you're saying. Correct. Yeah. Well, that, that was, again, one of the new facts that's included in your book that was surprising to me. Um, and would love to learn more. And it, it is interesting to know that, for, you know, it kind of signals that maybe our visas are being used by the FSB or some other Russian agency um, for purposes of getting people into the country, which, again, with all the hysteria of the border, you would think that would concern people in Congress. But, yes. 
Yes. Well, I think the visas are used by a lot more than the Russians for um, sometimes not legitimate reasons. Uh, one of the other questions I had for you was on page uh, 155 to 156, where you described reaching out to Brian Murphy, um, who was a DHS whistleblower. Uh, and I, when I saw that, I was like, wow, because, you know, this is exactly the right person to reach out to. Um, so I just wanted to know if you could perhaps talk a little bit about that call. Uh, you seem to indicate you didn't know him fairly well in your time at DHS, but you did know him. Yeah, I mean, I had spoken to him maybe twice when I was at DHS. Like, we did not work together closely. It was a couple times, like, about a case or something. So I knew who he was. I didn't really know him well. Uh, I was connected to him on LinkedIn. But when this happened, you know, uh, he was the only person I could think of that had any inkling of what I was going through. Um, and, because I, and this preceded, you know, uh, uh conversation right after on January 12th. So six days after January 6th, where I had a new supervisor, his son had left and everyone moved up. So I got a new supervisor as well. And she made it very clear that she did not like the way I was running the team. And so I thought I was going to get fired. I was like, how can I get blamed for, you know, January 6th? I was the only one who was saying something about it. So I went to Brian, I texted him on LinkedIn and I said, I don't, you know, I need help. I don't know what to do. What should I do? And he responded right away. And he's like, I'm going to connect you with my attorney. You will feel so much better once you get an attorney. He said, hang in there. Like it's, and within a few minutes, I was talking to his attorney and like, and the rest is history, as they say. But I was, I'm so grateful for Ryan, for Brian and his, and his support and his help and like being there for me in a time when like, I was scared and I didn't know what to do. It seems like there's this uh, defamation engine that is running. I mean, we've seen this pattern, um, you know, associated with Trump. Have you been targeted yet? Yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but I have a book coming out in a couple of weeks, so uh, <laughs> it's very possible. But you know what? I think with the book and, you know, what everything, you know, I've said in this interview and all the other interviews, it's only defamation if it's not true. And everything I'm saying saying is true. And my book has many, many, many citations to- no, I'm talking about defamation everything. directed at you yet, right? Oh. I mean, that's that's the fear. That's how they silence people. Um, right. Yeah, well, not I, yet. Not, not yet directed at me, but I'm making sure that everything I say is, is I've got- evidence to back it up literal truth doesn't matter in fact i think being actually truthful probably puts you at more risk of having them come after you um but yeah well good good luck um i hope that, that doesn't <laughs> doesn't actually happen to you um so i mean putting the january 6th into context i always think about uh, the Murrow bombing back in 95. Uh, we happened to live in Oklahoma at the time. And it, it seems to me we've been fighting this long war against, um, and it's a very one-sided war, against uh, domestic violent extremism. Um, I mean, do you think that, like, I don't think that federal law enforcement really frames it that way. I, I think that, as you, you mentioned, there's perhaps, uh, let's focus on Antifa, let's focus on BLM, 
Um, you know, and let's not focus on some of the former law enforcement people who joined the Oath Keepers uh, or three percenters or other groups. Um, do you, do you think, do you see that as, as like a thing? Like I know Shane Lamond, you know, working with the Proud Boys is a, a bit of an extreme example. Um, but, you know, like the blind, is there, is there a kind of unidirectional blindness problem? Mm, like potentially, I mean, those groups definitely want law enforcement and military because of the training that they can bring to the table. And, um, I don't know if it's, they're more like vulnerable or more susceptible to being persuaded to, to, um, join some extremist groups, but you know, it, it happens for sure. And it's, it's known to happen. And you look at the Oath Keepers, you know, list of their, of their membership that got leaked. A lot of them are military. A lot of them are, are police officers. And that's, that's super problematic for sure. And finally, um, in the recommendation section, I think it's recommendation 10. You mentioned one of the things that we could do educationally is to uh, give our kids more resilience to educate them about propaganda and um, mm -hmm. possible recruitment. And of course, I think about online groups like the Droipers, Nick Fuentes, America First, mm -hmm. in that context, because they target young people. Um, right. But to me, it's like the main danger seems to be people in my demographic, like Gen X or even older white, angry middle aged men who have a grievance. Mm -hmm. um, do you see any? <laughs> What do we do about about the angry white men with a grievance? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. It depends on like what's motivating the grievance, right? Because different ideologues, different groups have different ideologies. So, you know, the demographics for QAnon is different than the demographics for white supremacists than different from, you know, a militia member. And so you have to get to the root of like, what is what is motivating the grievance? And, you know, all of those situations, and I do talk about it in the chapter before the last chapter, but like what leads someone down a road to radicalization? Because you can have, you know, an angry white man more often than not than, you know, an angry white woman or other demographics, you, they can, they can become radicalized and that can lead to violence. And I think more than, you know, extremist groups, it's extremist ideology that motivates a lone wolf. And that's probably the biggest threat to us now is, you know, we've seen it. We saw it with the Buffalo shooting. We saw it with, you know, you know, a bunch of different instances where you had someone who became radicalized and then used that extremist ideology to commit violent acts. And that that's something we need to approach domestic violent extremists like we do foreign terrorist organizations. If someone gets radicalized by al-Qaeda or ISIS, we should handle that the same way as if someone gets radicalized by, you know, the base or, you know, Graham or whatever, pick your favorite white supremacist group. It should be handled the same way. And we should have intervention and we should have, you know, debriefs and things like that and something to prevent it from becoming violent. But we don't have a program because we look at it differently when there are a lot of similarities between radicalization with foreign terrorist organizations and radicalization with domestic violent extremists. And finally, I know you have the book coming out uh, January uh, 2nd, I think? 2nd, yes. Um, uh, 
what's next for you? Well, I started my own company. It's called Pandora's Intelligence. And we do open source intelligence. We work a lot with um, attorneys doing litigation support and background stuff for that. We work with employers doing criminal history checks, social media checks, things like that. And it's going really well and I'm excited about it. So uh, I feel great about you know what I'm doing and I have control of like my life and my schedule. And as I mentioned, I am running for the Arlington, Virginia County Board. And I hope to give back to my community and I hope to have the opportunity to do more in like the government realm, but maybe different than what I have been doing previously. Great. That all sounds wonderful. Well, well, thank you so much for appearing. I uh, wish you every success with the book and I mm -hmm. highly recommend it to all the listeners. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.